expect me to talk? Good evening, everyone. It's episode 22 of Do You Expect Us to Talk? And as we've got a guest, they've put the most mature of us in charge tonight. Uh, <laughs> we thought, we've got to show the best of ourselves tonight. Let's put the guy in charge who's the oldest. So it's Is that dad of the team? Yeah, all right. <laughs> okay. So yeah, anyway. let's get the one who told the Honor Blackman joke. This is our host. Yeah, well, at least we've never mentioned that since. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's introduce the normal team first. Mr. Chris Byrne, how are you? I'm all right. I'm uh, sipping on a, a Badger Tanglefoot uh, Ale, which is a... Uh, okay, so Chris is sucking off a Badger. Becca, how are you? I've been better, but hello. Well, there you go. Rave reviews. Um, and we've got our guest back tonight. Now, I have to say, without sucking his dick, which we'll do after the show's finished... Um, one of the best reviewed episodes we ever had in terms of feedback we had um, from people on Twitter, Facebook, etc., was our first music episode where we covered uh, the work of John Barry between 1962 and 1971. And people said to us, please get him back. And we have. So, from Films on Wax, Mr. Charlie Brigden, how are you, sir? Um, other than seeing Spectre finally the other day, I'm okay. And what a rave review you <laughs> gave it, Charlie. <laughs> You loved it, didn't you, Charlie? Charlie oh, loved that film. Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> I know. Jesus Christ. Come on, tell us what you will think. <laughs> oh, it's dreadful. Um, I mean, I, I I, kind of was able to watch it and enjoy it in the same way I can watch and enjoy Moonraker and um, some of the more dire of the older films, but it was just a mess. And considering that... that the talk is that essentially that's going to be Daniel Craig's last Bond film. That is a horrific note to go out on. It doesn't feel. It doesn't feel. Sorry, it just doesn't feel like a right note to end on. It's like because obviously it ends on such a. All right, so there's going to be another one. You can't. You can't. It's not like a, a place to end a Bond film. You know, it's like it's like ending on a major secret surface, but, but without her getting shot uh, at the end. It's you know it's like having that you, you expect okay there's going to be something else happening it's that you know, th- you know th- there's more to follow on and for Daniel Craig to like right I'm not doing it anymore it just be a bit of an odd play really yeah I, d- I don't agree with all these rumours saying oh it's going to be his last one I just think I think he's got a couple more in the can at least so I don't know that he's got a couple more in the can I well no that... but maybe one maybe thereabouts but all these rumours of like. You, you might be right, Becky. That. You don't know because he's quite inscrutable, and but he does come out with these strange things at the end of like long filming sessions and so. Mm. On. Yeah, when he's that, like, "Oh, I want to slash my wrist," but that's yeah, right. all you ever hear, you, you know. And the thing is, I've heard things in the past that he really loves playing the part, and and I've heard him say things like, "I'll play it for as long as I can, and they want me to," which implies that like if he was fifty six and they were still saying please, he would. But on exactly. the other hand you hear these little things and you think you know maybe not so I don't until think we hear know, it from Daniel Craig or Eon that's it yeah absolutely yeah, sorry. I think that's the thing I think that they are pushing it like a constant news stories keep hearing it's not just like it seems to be one every week now like that seems to be oh someone's let slip but always leaving and it's just like uh, yeah but it's not really telling us anything new really just people assuming and speculating I think is I think that it was just he seems so bored, Inspector. See, I had a different take on him in that, but that, that might be big screen, small screen. 
Absolutely. Because we all saw him on opening night on the big screen. And I, honestly, Charlie, right, I found him utterly magnetic on the big screen in that film. And then I read your review saying how bored he was. Well, I watched it when the DVD came out, so I kind of take your point. Mm. But on the big screen, he was so dominant in that film. But I tend to wonder if they use different um, like edits or different intonations, because like, the way he says certain lines are different in the trailers, obviously, to get us bums on seats. Well, Bond James Bond film. was when he was... Um, <laughs> You know, politely taking advantage of Miss Bellucci. <laughs> Definitely. Um, to be honest, it's one of those films. I tell you what, it reminds me of in some ways, and this is red rag to a ball for anyone listening, and maybe Charlie as well. But it reminds me of Man of Steel, in as much as like when anyone says anything good about it, I go, "Yeah, you're absolutely right." And when anyone says anything bad about it, I go, "Yeah, you're absolutely right." I, I, I have exactly that. It's yeah, same. It's that kind of. Uh... There's no middle ground. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of very much like a middle ground kind of person. I try and look for the good and bad and everything and try and, like, sort of give everything its fair, fair whip. So when everyone's, like, going, like, oh, my God, it's terrible, you know, I think, well, it's not that bad. But people, like, basically sucking its dick. I say, oh, hang on, come on. There are issues. <laughs> yeah, hold on a minute. Yeah, you know I mean? yeah so yeah. I, I completely get with that. <laughs> I, I think I think it's a much better film than Man of Steel. Um, but then they... Yeah, I think I remember. You. I think why I said bread rag to a bull is I'm sure I've seen something from you on online about hating Man of Steel, Charlie. Oh, and that's absolutely. absolutely fine. But I can totally get why. But if someone turned around to me and said Man of Steel was a film they absolutely adored, I'd get that too. And I feel kind of the same way about Spectre. There's no doubt I overpraised it when it came out, and I think it's dropping away quite alarmingly. I got the Blu-ray through. And I wasn't that keen to watch it. And when I did watch it, I thought it was all right. So there's no doubt I don't like it as much as when it came out. But as a big screen experience, I don't understand why it was as slaughtered as it was. Well, I, th- I think films certainly, obviously because they're made for the big screen, mm. um, there's, it, sometimes they are a completely different experience. I mean, I remember going to see Transformers. And I actually quite liked it when I saw it in the cinema. Um, and then I watched it on uh, on DVD and... Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the first Transformers film is okay. Like it's the sequels yeah. that are just like, oh, seriously, like are just like overlong, really boring. You know, at least like the first one's a bit put. Is it got a bit punch to it? You know. It's, yeah. It's still mm. it's still overlong, and it still has a a subplot that could easily be taken out. But, uh, you know, it it it's still okay. You know, it's it's better than the others. Apart from Mark and Mark Cost, but... uh, These things can hurt, but I find the best way to deal with your pain is to, like, relax and discuss the work of George Martin, Bill Conti and Marvin Hamlish. Absolutely. Let's do it. Let's hope we've got someone here who can help us with that. So, Charlie, first time you came to join us, we had had an all-John Barry diet. It's a bit more, like, varied this time. Well, there was Monty Norman at the start, but, yeah, I mean, with uh, a... John Barry wanted to kind of go away from Bond after Diamonds Are Forever, and yeah, um, so af- after that, who can blame him? <laughs> um, I think he he kind of got there was the formula that he was kind of tired of, and also he had um, arguments with um, Harry Saltzman and um, Guy Hamilton on Diamonds Are Forever. Obviously, Hamilton came back for Live and Let Die, um, so uh, yeah, bringing Hamilton back. I don't know why. <laughs> they must have been really like the thing is it, it probably was a thing where you know they, they just liked each other so they just got on it was an easy thing to do it was like, oh I'll get him back and I'll keep on shooting really 
Um, and, you know, they must have still made the money. So. Well, uh, yeah, but I mean, he nearly came back for The Spy Who Loved Me. And when you think, like, how The Man with the Golden Gun did and how sloppy two of his previous three films were. You just think, I, I cannot believe that you, you didn't challenge that and do something else. If Guy Hamilton hadn't walked away to do something else, Guy Hamilton would have made The Spy You Love Me, which I, I just find mind-blowing. I, th- I think the thing is, um, and this is quite similar to the, the whole Star Trek thing, is the fact that he made Goldfinger. Yeah. And Goldfinger, yeah. for, for most people, is James Bond, the same way Wrath of Khan is Star Trek for a lot of people. So you make those films and you've kind of got a bit of a pass and uh, people are going to think, well, yeah, the last one was rubbish, but maybe he's got another Goldfinger in him. Yeah, it's like rolling a dice, like going like, oh, well, well, it was shit last time, but come on, it might turn out like six again. Come on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's there's some of that to it. And to be honest, Goldfinger, whether you think it's as overrated, underrated, or whatever, uh, it, it does give you a lot of like, um, what's the word, credit in the bank. I mean, oh, absolutely. You know, so you can understand, but um, but I yeah. I struggle to see how they, you know, if 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 I watched like say, uh, Goldfinger and Man with Gold Gun, and even Live and Let Die, and if you and you know and if you'd asked me if they were the same director, I'd, I'd probably say no. So, because I just cannot see the resemblance in Goldfinger and the other Bond films he's done. No, the, just, the, the gap in quality between the two is quite it, difficult. And it's not you, can't, like, you can't reconcile it, them. And it's not just the fact that it, it's quality, it's something else. It's like just the style of it just seems different. It just doesn't look the same as the others. You know, if that makes any sense. It just doesn't, you know, it's not the fact that, oh, well, they're rubbish films and this is really good. It's just, it, it, yeah, there is a, like, a, a genuine kind of, I don't know. The whole texture of them is different. Well, I, I, I suppose because it, this was the first Roger Moore film as well, there was a kind of marked change in, certainly in tone for the films. Um, um, but, I mean, I understand what you mean. I, th- I think generally his films kind of deteriorated as they went on. Because, like, Goldfinger... speaking. Yeah, Goldfinger. God, I mean, Goldfinger is amazing. Um, I quite like Living Let Die. I don't know if I could say it's that good a film, but I like it. But then The Man with the Golden Gun is just... Um... It's pretty poor. Yes. <laughs> and, you, and you waste really good material because they've got nice locations, really good um, villain, at least the actor. I mean, Christopher Lee was a bit B-movie, but he was good in everything he was in. Mm. And, like, Knickknack was kind of interesting if you use him right. And Maud Adams was good and you just think that there's some material there to make a really great film and, and my god they did not uh, but I, st- I, I still think Diamonds is worse yeah I think we all I mean, I, of course I, he directed I, that didn't yeah, he yeah, <laughs> I, I, after, after watching Diamonds I think after David <laughs> watched Diamonds I, I, how many times did you watch Diamonds in the end? oh no it was Moonraker I watched time after time Diamonds was only a couple of times I think that's bad it enough. Was in Moonraker, I watched five times. Jesus, he knows it inside out. I know. Well, you think I'd know it inside out, but I really concentrated the first time, and then after that, my concentration dropped away every time, just a little <laughs> bit more. 
Whereas by the end, you could have swapped the DVD for like Postman Pat, and I'm not sure I would have noticed the difference <laughs> because I was barely paying any attention. But um, back to the start of the Roger Moore era, I guess what's really noted about this, and it's going to be a bit of a theme for the show coming up now, is how much more variety there is, I think, during this. And they've changed Bond once before this, and although they came out with a pretty unique film in Majesties. In George Lazenby, they had an actor who was trying to be Connery, sort of. And, you know, you had John Barry. You had lots of elements that you'd seen in previous films. I think it's fair to say with Live and Let Die, they were trying to do a different spin. Right the way down to not ordering a martini, smoking cigars, and lots of different things. And, and not least amongst that was the music. Very, very different. Yeah, uh, George Martin, very like a poppy kind of... I want to say a little bit funky, but it was kind of like very up-tempo, kind of almost like groove dance sort of beat. You know, when, when as soon as like you notice it, as soon as like the you know the the gun battle sequence comes on, it's a proper like almost like faster pace, like ding 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 ding. ding. You're like, oh my god, it's like a dance remix. Yeah, that, well, that's... it's uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> one thing I'm going to say, and we'll get round it in the edit. But it, it, if we can't for any reason, listeners, there might be the odd bit where we say, and we'll play a clip of that now, and nothing happens. Yes. So it's quite possible. It might but get muted. I know we can get a, cute, a, a clip of this. So here is Roger Moore's Gun Barrel for Live and Let Die. So yeah, like Chris says, even that sounds a little bit different. Yeah, it's a definite statement. Um, just the style of this, especially the uh, the kind of blast fl- flaring in it. Um, it's just got a very, very kind of different intention. Um, and I think I think Martin's score in general, um, while they say he wasn't kind of directly influenced by the kind of black exploitation style around him. Um, Definitely, it's influenced by the uh, the locations and um, mm. the the cast. And when I look back on it now, actually, Paul McCartney seems an odd choice. Just because we you say black exploitation, why didn't Isaac Hayes do this? Do you know what I mean, or something <laughs> like that? That's what you'd expect. You go, well, we're doing a black exploitation Bond film, and Paul McCartney does the song for it, or Barry White, or someone. Yeah, somebody like that. Yeah. Rather than a white male. <laughs> yeah. From, from England. Yeah. Yeah. Ex Beatles. Uh, well, I know some someone in the uh, in the in Eon had a uh, had a connection with McCartney, and yeah. um, and asked him to, uh, to to write the song. Mm. And the, the the funny thing is that apparently when they played it to Harry Saltzman, <clears throat> he uh, he liked it, and then turned around and say, "Well, who's going to sing it?" Oh. <laughs> And, yeah, uh, he did, and the person that they offered it to is in the film. Yeah, the the, uh, the, the person who actually sings it in, in the film is a, um, a an artist called B.J. Arnu, who plays it in the the Filet of Soul. Yeah, um, and that that could well have been the uh, the person who sang it over the theme tune. They actually sort of gave her that as a bit of an apology, 
because she genuinely thought she was coming to do this. Yeah, by, by all accounts, Saltzman kind of went in as he was wont to do and kind of did it all himself while everyone else was kind of biting their nails, mm. hoping that it didn't turn out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the bit of music, there isn't a lot in Live and Let Die. Having, I mean, basically, I think we've all taken the same approach to this when, when you come on, Charlie. It's like you do quite a lot of research for it. We do quite a lot of research for the main films and, and all the rest of it. We mm. don't do a huge amount from this. We go off memory and sort of talk to you about what you've sort of found. I have to say, with Live and Let Die, not much of the music really sticks out. Uh, the one that really does is when he's flying to the United States and Solitaire is um, doing a reading. It's just yeah. as a man comes over water. Mm. There's a really, without the obvious joke I cracked in the review <laughs> over that, uh, the music over that is really, really striking. Um, if I can find it, we'll play a clip right now. quickly. He has purpose. He comes over water. He travels with others. That's actually Solitaire's theme. The do, 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 do. Right. It, it's and got a real momentum behind it. It's really good. Yeah, and he, he uses it all throughout the score, and it's, it's amazing. There's, there's one point... Um, during the uh, the boat chase, where he uses the actual Bond theme that did as the rhythm, and then the uh, Solitaire's theme as the uh, the counterpoint, and it's just amazing, and it's it's, it's such a strong theme, and I really think um, Live and Let Die is is one of the best Bond scores. I, I remember in in review, I think we said, I think we all said that like if if you offered us like. If you said you can have a run of these from one composer, we'd take John Barry. But we were really quite comfortable with the change, and I think we all kind of liked the, the differences that came with it. But he, he honoured what had come before. He didn't. He didn't do an Eric Serra and do something really wacky with it. Oh God! Yeah, that's the, that's the thing. These composers like Martin, like Conti, like Hamlish. They're remembered a lot for the kind of more outlandish things they did. But what isn't remembered um, mostly is that a lot of the time in the actual score, they do follow Barry's kind of formula quite well. Yeah, they do. I mean, most of it is 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 kind of of a piece. It's fine. And I, I mean, of all the different scores we're going to talk about, I mean, prob- probably George Martin stands out least in the when we get to like Bill Conti a bit later in this episode, oh, that's a very yeah. different score. Like <laughs> it or hate it. It's very, very Completely. different. This isn't really. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm struggling to think what else might have started, stood out. The only thing that, that does occur to me is solitaire originally was, was, was considered uh, to be Diana Ross. Mm. And obviously I think had Diana Ross been in the film, we would have heard some of her on the, the soundtrack. Surely. She might have even done the theme really. She yeah, might have done. done. Yeah, there's a um, a lot of the kind of percussion as well. Uh, certainly from the, like the Sam Monique scenes, there's that there's a scene in the beginning where um, Baron Samadhi's kind of dancing around with the snake, um, and one of the agents is tied up to the pole, and the um, 
and and the the drums are going half leather, but then the strings are going and mimicking the tension from the snake when it's about to bite him, and then and then the snake bites him, and then it's a ding, and then it goes ding, ding, and then the McCartney song uh, yes, starts it up. Does and it's so yeah good. because it, yeah it mimics yeah. the life sort of going out of him. Pity pity the snake effects not. Yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> pity, pity the visuals are actually pretty weak and poor. <laughs> yeah, that's mm. the only thing. It's like oh. But, the yeah. music's the best thing about that scene rather than the he stabbed, acting he or the visuals. He him with his, like, you know, uh, <laughs> car copy. Blatant rubber snake. snake holding it by its head. Draft excluder, yeah. Obviously yeah. oh, a fake snake. And that's Amazing. The thing, it, it does sound dangerous. It sounds quite a dangerous score at times. Um, and I think that does kind of make, maybe make the film better than it is. Yeah. It gives it an edge, really, doesn't it? Yeah. But the film itself is a bit of an offshoot because it's like, you know, you go straight from, like, Bond, which is... Pretty, and you know it's out of language, but it's pretty based Rob um, in kind of like reality esque, you know, world. But you know, then you start is oh, well, there's voodoo, there's magic, there's mystery. You know, there's a guy who's undead. You know, and, and this this kind of plays with those kind of themes, so it adds a little bit of like of a, of a mixture of like oh, we've not had this before. This is a bit, this is a bit yeah. of a change of pace. So I think the music kind of would match. That, really. Absolutely, and the, the the song as well, which was the first James Bond song to be nominated for an Oscar. Was it indeed? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay, it's not actually a favourite of mine. What do you guys think? It's a classic. I don't oh, hate. I don't dislike it at all. But it, I think I think of it more as a. It, it's weird. Out of all the Bond themes, that more popular Bond themes, I think of it more as a. A standard rock classic rather than a Bond song, if that makes any sense. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very. So I think I, I remember saying on last week's episode. I think of Bond themes. Um, I could think of the Bond films as like they're separate. Then you know, I think of Bond films as separate from films, and I think of Bond themes separate from songs. This is Living Like That is the only one for me that kind of crosses over. That kind of like that lives in, you know. The, the other song category for me, you know, it's just like it, you know, it, it, it's it's the only one I sort of think. Oh, I I, I think of like the covers that Guns N' Roses did, or you know, that like, could or, be partly to do with it. Or, just imagine yeah, this. I would just imagine it coming on and Chris going, "Hey, this sounds just like a real song." <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. It's like, or even just the fact that it's, it's Paul McCartney because it's such a pop song. You know, it is not 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 necessarily something you yeah associate it's, it's... with Bond. It's got a much no. different kind of sensibility, um, again, because of Martin and McCartney and their whole kind of rock world crossover, than the more kind of elegant kind of lounge feeling of the uh, of all the previous songs and Shirley yeah. Bassey and things like that. Absolutely. Is there anything else you want to point out in the score particularly, Charlie, that you can think of as we go through the film? Uh, not that I can think of. Um mm. Because uh, it did occur to me, uh, you mentioned earlier on Facebook, you were talking about uh, reading up and listening to The Man with the Golden Gun. Now, mm. all the Barry works I can think of, as a little educated oaf as I am, not much of it stands out to me. I don't like the theme tune much, and the score does not resonate with me at all. What in that score does it for you, if anything? The sound effect of does the car jump. Yeah, I think we should probably get that out of the way now. 
Um, okay. Um, I'm going to see if I can find a clip for it. Again, listeners, if this is disjointed, I might not be able to. But there is a classic car stunt in this film, as you've heard in review, that is ruined by this. You're not thinking that. I sure am, boy. Ever heard of Evil Knievel? And if you heard, there, I couldn't find it. But it is really, really awful, and it ruins one of the best stunts in cinema history, in my opinion. Now, now with CG and everything else, you can do much more impressive-looking things. But as a practical effect, this was mind-blowing. And for for one of the very few times in the Bond series, the the, the uh, composer ruins it. Yes, absolutely. It's the the stunt is so so good, and it. Aside from maybe Christopher Lee, it's probably the best thing about the film. Yeah. Um, but that ruins it absolutely. And I, I, yeah. he, he, I mean, Barry himself has since said, "Oh my God, what was I thinking?" <laughs> Good. Um, but I, I think with him at that time still being kind of a, a bit bored of Bond, even coming back, he it's almost of, like he did it to cheer himself up. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's just like, what it's just like well, this will be a laugh. Way. Way. Yeah, so I don't know what else to say about this score because I hate Lulu's song. Lulu's a bad choice, and the thing is as well, no one's remembered to tell her to breed. Uh, this is the man with the golden gun. I think we're going to get onto our first alternate in a minute, but um, here's a little bit of Lulu's song. I won't play an awful lot of it, and it's mainly later in the song where she seems to be struggling to breed, but this is the man with the golden gun by Lulu. Now, that wasn't necessarily going to be the song because there was an alternate. Yeah. Um, and Alice... I like it. I really like it. <laughs> yeah, Alice Cooper, um, according to him, he was originally set to uh, to do the song and, and they recorded a song. They did. Um, but apparently was a day late delivering it and they previously already signed Lulu because it was too late. You've got to feel a bit time. sorry for him on the basis that Daniel Craig can say, oh, I'll do it in five years' time, and they'll go, yes, Daniel, and suck him <laughs> off. Whereas Alice, uh, was a day, Alice was a day late. Alice is a day late. He missed out. Uh, if I can find it, again, this is Alice Cooper's version of The Man with the Golden Gun. Oh, 
Now, I have to say, I really quite like that. I agree. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a, again, it's a bit left field choice, but then I suppose coming after McCartney, it's like, oh, well, let's go a bit heavier. And, yeah, it's a completely and, different yeah. change of tack, isn't it? Yeah, um, but yeah, I kind of like it. I think it can, it probably add a, a bit more darkness to the film, I think, had they gone with it. Yeah, I think apparently Christopher Lee preferred it as well. Um, yeah, but he was a bit of a rocker, Christopher Lee. Well, yeah. He did have some metal albums up. later in his life. Yeah. Um, interestingly, um, Liza Minnelli was one of the background singers on the, on no, the really? Scooper song. <laughs> yeah. I never knew that, wow. Did they record but, it in rehab? <laughs> right, I, th- I think the, the score does have some interesting bits. I think while the, the song doesn't really work, um, the actual theme from the song works beautifully in the actual film um, as they really could have, but Barry really changed his style around this time um, when you go back to the older Bond films that he did uh, they were more kind of harsh um, a bit more kind of cool whereas he kind of changed to this much more kind of lush kind of string based uh, kind of work and certainly the way he uses, uses the um, the theme on the strings here is is amazing and also just a couple of really kind of really evocative bits like there's a track called hips trip um when they go to the uh, the, the, the queen elizabeth um when it's on pluck strings there and then there's a beautiful really lush version of the theme um and there's the uh, at the beginning when he's doing the in the fun house and there's a couple of little kind of he has some fun with the theme there's like a western piano version of it and then there's a um another kind of saxophone version when he has a lot of kind of just just having a bit of fun with it and um, um, and in 1976 he'd scored the uh, the, re- the remake of King Kong and there's some bits like the bits when they're around Scaramanga's Island really kind of big portentous brass bits um, that are very much kind of a preclude to that score which is actually an excellent score to a not a fantastic film yeah, um, I suppose the Funhouse does stick out to me. You were talking about the Western bit. Obviously, there's a little bit of a Western theme in part of the Funhouse. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't think it's a remarkable score, and I don't think it, it's not a remarkable film. It doesn't transcend the film in the way that, like, the Diamond score does. No. I think it suffers because of the film itself. I think. I mean, if, if the, the, the part of the score that sticks out to me is with a bit where he goes Oriental. Uh, you know that uh, thing Charlie was commenting that it's that kind of lush, sort of kind of romantic, but kind of Oriental kind of like, mm. theme. The song, and that's, that's kind of what I really like about uh, Barry, uh, when, particularly as we get to later on, particularly with uh, View to a Kill and uh, Octopussy. But when he brings the the theme, he did do Octopussy. Am I just? Yes, yes, you yeah. did. Okay. Yes, yeah. uh, just, just thought I'd check, just in case I'd be like... <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah, anger Bond fans going, No, you're <laughs> wrong! Uh, well, it's a bit like rolling a turning glitter, but yeah, he did yeah. do it. Stop he, getting he, Bond wrong! <laughs> yeah, no, uh, but when he brings back the, 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 the actual, like, the main theme of the song, like, and into the actual score, it just, he, he always makes it sound really good, you know, and you think, oh, good, you bring the actual, the theme and the tone of the film into the actual film as well, yeah. That's what, yeah, I think that's what Barry does best. He kind of really brings like the really the lush, like thick sounding um, like strings or brass, and kind of really you know works the theme into the overall tune of the film, which is pretty good. Yeah. So if if Alice Cooper did actually do it, um, yeah, I I I'd struggle to think what Barry would have done. 
because you can, I can kind of see the Lulu song. Obviously, we, we you know we can hear what he can do with that. But with in terms of Alice Cooper, which is kind of crunchy, it's like proper like riffy. It's like dun, 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 dun. I I do wonder what Barry would have done with it. You know, he wouldn't have like would have brought out these kind of lush sort of like melodies from it. I don't think. Yeah, how would he have worked that into the yeah into the melody? Unless, of the film? unless he just came out with something completely different. I don't know. He may have just like it. It may it may have had that down already, and then they just made a song from it. You know, and then Lulu starts talking about innuendos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, he has a powerful weapon. Yeah, really. <laughs> he charges a million a shot. Really. <laughs> Just to reiterate, yes. I do. I do not. Oh, really? but, but I do have a powerful weapon. Well, I'm just thinking. You know, we could do a. We can literally do a <laughs> donation drive. <laughs> we could charge a million a shot. Well, nobody will pay it. <laughs> a shot of what? I'll dare ask. Um, spunk, Chris. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I, should, I, should, I, I shouldn't have asked. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Now the next film brings. I think both mine and Charlie's favourite song, and I'm not quite sure what to make of the score. Parts of it are kind of iconic, parts of it are kind of a bit misbegotten. What do you think, Charlie? Spy, you love me. I, th- I, th- I think it's an excellent score. Yeah. Um, I think what, what Marvin Hamish was, uh, was able to do with, again, straddling the line between um, not straying too much from the, uh, the Barry formula... Um, but also bringing a couple of new things like this and some nice synth effects. And obviously the the big one that, that people go on about is Bond 77, yeah. um, which, he, which he fully admitted that he kind of was very influenced by the Bee Gees. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit disco, disco. Um, uh, but I, I think... It's more yeah. disco than For Your Eyes Only, which is the one that most people sort of go like, yeah. oh, that, that's the disco score. I don't yeah. think it is. Like, Spy is the proper, like, you know, glitter balls at the ready, flares. Yeah. You know, <laughs> get, 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 yeah, get your John, Spel- John Travolta, uh, you know, suits out. Saturday Night Fever out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, but, that, that is, that, that is the, the one that's like that. Yeah, but but again, like I was talking earlier, it's only in a couple of moments in the film. The, the, the first... Only pre-title. The ski chase, and then he brings it back again when... Uh, during the Lotus chase. Oh yes, it does. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, because there's there's a, which is which is has some really nice action music. There's this kind of do 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 do, and then it kind of yeah, and then when he's being chased by the the guy on the motorcycle with the missile sidecar, and then there's Caroline Monroe in the helicopter, and then it kind of brings back the Bond seventy seven stuff. But other than that, there's like this just some really kind of. Evocative bits like this, the the ride to Atlantis, um, which again is is not necessarily that much Barry, but um, and it's still got a, kind of a bit of a synth influence. But it's kind of you kind of feel like the the, the bubbles of the water sea kind of bubbling up, can't you? Yeah, yeah, abs- abs- yeah you absolutely. Can. Let's just yeah. hold it there for a second, folks, because anyone listening, um, I imagine most people listening to this are Bond fans. They know what we're talking about, but just in case you can't. Uh, sort of match the name to the theme. Here is Bond 77, just a little clip from it. Bond 
so yeah, that that is the bit of music I think of when I think of the Spy Who Loved Me. There's no doubt, uh, with the exception of Carly Simon's wonderful, wonderful song. Absolutely, and the the brilliant thing that that Hamish does is he uses that at the start to kind of bring in his in his own style, and then at the crucial moment brings back a classic rendition of the Bond theme for uh, that amazing ski jump parachute scene. Um, and then before well, as, that goes as, as the um, as the parachute opens, yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, is that a is that a? It feels like a brassier mix of it. I don't know if that's just my imagination. No, it's it is really brass heavy. Yeah. Okay. That, I, I thought that was just my imagination. Yeah. No. I think, and uh, and then and then the way it kind of segues into uh, into the amazing Carly Simon song. Um, it's just such a beautiful song, and again, the way it's it's not used that often, kind of instrumentally during the film. But when it is, like when they're on the uh, they're on the boat, on, on the boat, yeah, yeah. And it's just wonderful. Just before some wonderful acting from Roger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've been drugged. <laughs> oh, it's Jessica Dyke. <laughs> mm. yeah. Wasn't it used also in the back of the van? Well, yeah. Uh, yes, it was. Um, yeah. The thing around the thing when again when I think of the again, again where he raises his eyebrows like, Ooh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> um. <laughs> and then she wakes up and he's like kind of calmly going like rubs his eye going oh nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a um, over the course of this and Moonraker there was a couple of little musical in jokes. Um, first of all, when they're in the desert, there's a Lawrence of Arabia. Um, yeah, I the, just the, wanted to go and watch Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, the Maurice Jarre score, and then another Maurice Jarre when the um, when Triple X is in bed with her uh, Russian bloke. Um, Harry, yeah, <laughs> they're working up the Russian bloke. I think I think that is credited on IMDb as that the Russian bloke, <laughs> the Russian guy. <laughs> Um, the one that Bond kills, and the uh, the music box that opens up for her to uh, get her message. The, the, the tune it plays is um, Lara's theme from Doctor Zhivago. Of course, yeah, it is. Yes, it is. Of course. Then why have we got to mention that in the uh, in the commentary? Because we didn't think about it. Because we didn't think about it at the time. And, and plus, plus, we were listening to it as well. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> plus, we were marveling at Barbara Bach's acting. <laughs> <laughs> she, was, she was both bored and coming <laughs> or something. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> the Spy Loved Me, the problem with it is you got a great song, you got Bond 77, you've got other things that Charlie's pointed to. But it is like I, I do think of like the goofier elements of that film, so I think of like the circus music with the broken down van and stuff like that. Yeah. Um I have to say Whilst this the song of this film is transcendent, I think the next score is better. I think Moonraker has a better score. Yeah, I think undoubtedly Moonraker is one of the greatest James Bond scores. Um, and, and, and it's off a song I know you quite like, Charlie, but I don't think we're that fond of the song. But my God, didn't it lend itself to a wonderful score? Which reminds me of his Somewhere in Time score from the following year in yeah. several places. It could, it could be that like the, the, the score he wrote didn't transcend a good song, you know, for that time. You know, it, it transcends like kind of like a, a forgetful kind of dull kind of melody, really. 
um, as a song, but yeah, as it, when used in a film as a piece of music, it it sounds much better. I think Barry was amazing at doing that um, because he had, he mostly had control of the uh, of writing the melody for the song as well as for the score. Um, he was able to use those melodies really well. And even when the songs didn't necessarily work that well, like the Man with the Golden Gun, when he used the actual melody during the actual score, um, it worked beautifully. And again, like yeah, like Somewhere in Time, it's, this, it's just that beautiful, lush, evocative kind of uh, style from Barry um, yeah. that makes it just such a good score. I mean, originally, Barry wanted to write the film while it was still in production, write the score while it was still in production, and wanted to make kind of like a big kind of like symphony out of the uh, for for the for the film, um, but uh, for whatever reason that kind of fell by the wayside. Um, but that would have been potentially interesting. It would have been. I just I wouldn't want to swap what we got. I mean, there's been um, there's been there's been several surprises going through this series. I mean, most of the films I kind of think roughly about what I thought before we started. Mm. Moonraker. I, I don't love it now. But I, I really don't. But it's definitely better than I thought it was. The the cinema, the two things about the film that surprised me in such a positive way uh, were the cinematography because it's a beautiful looking film. Mm. But the score was just—it really stood out from the films around it, and that surprised me. I thought Moonraker would have just been a bit unremarkable, but its score is genuinely beautiful. I don't actually know what I'm going to put on here now because it will be driven a little bit like by what we can find. But I'm going to just play a little bit from the score for Moonraker right now. So, yeah, I, I just think it's a really, really pretty score. I've always liked it. There aren't many bits. Part of me saying, like, I don't know what, I fi- what I'll find will be, it's strangely, some of the things, it doesn't, not much of it stands out to me, but it's all really, like, pretty. It's all really attractive on the ear. Mm, I mean, the, the the actual soundtrack album that was released is is not great. Is it not? Um, there's not? There's not one use of the James Bond theme on the soundtrack. Um, and uh, the, the, the score was actually recorded in France, in Paris. Um, because, yeah, because it was an Anglo-French production. A lot of that film was dubbed yeah. in France. And also because John Barry at, the, at that time was a tax exile. 
Oh, he was okay. So he wasn't allowed to work in the uh, in the United Kingdom, um, mm. and the th- the story is that um, for whatever reason, because it was uh, it was recording in France, the um, no one's exactly sure where the tapes went, the master tapes. Um, so it's not had any kind of previous any any kind of um, subsequent release. And in fact, there is a. Um, a company that is called Tadley Music, which basically they um, use an orchestra, the City of Prague Philharmonic Orchestra, and they record a lot of scores that um, either could benefit from new recordings or aren't available. They, they, they've done Lawrence of Arabia, and they do all these beautiful kind of Miklos Rochers, and they did, recently did a Bernard Herrmann one. And they, they actually did a Kickstarter for doing a complete version of Moonraker, and I might have this wrong, but I thought they I thought they re-recorded uh, uh, John Williams' Superman score as well. They didn't, but someone else did. Oh. Um, okay. Yeah, that, that was I know done. that got re-recorded, and there's yeah. subtle differences in the way it sounds. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of re-recordings out there that are absolutely beautiful. I mean, there's there's a couple of um, the yeah, label uh, Vary Sarabande. They actually did the Superman one, and they did a whole. Um, sequence of albums dedicated to the Bernard Herrmann, Alfred Hitchcock scores, things like Vertigo and North by Northwest and things like that. Um, As well as they actually did a recording. um, They spent a lot of time uh, recording in Scotland with the uh, Royal National Scottish Orchestra. And they had Jerry Goldsmith conducting the original score to 2001, the Alex North score before it was thrown out for the sake of the classical music. I didn't know there was a previous score on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, And uh, with Moonraker, they did a Kickstarter and it got funded completely, but unfortunately they had to withdraw it because of some legal issues and apparently they are still trying to work it out. But, I mean, I I think Moonraker for me has the, uh, the, the... probably the greatest bit of music from a James Bond film in it, which is the, uh, the flight into space, which is just amazing... Just really, uh, it's just it's just a wonderful score, and I just say because because somewhere in time is a favourite of mine. I was really struck by bits. I thought, oh, that's really similar. Yeah, and it, it's just it is it, it's it might be his prettiest score. Absolutely, it's just it's just so beautiful to listen to. Um, a little note on on the song. Originally, um, the song was written by Paul Williams. Um, who's probably best known for writing the um, the Rainbow Connection, the Kermit the Frog song, uh, <laughs> as as well as a um, a bunch of songs for a musical by Brian De Palma called The Phantom of the Paradise, which is a huge favourite of mine. And um, he actually wrote the song for Frank Sinatra, and for whatever reason, Sinatra wasn't able to record it. So Barry went in and they recorded it with Johnny Mathis. Um, that didn't work. They asked Kate Bush to to provide a song. She turned them down, and then with like a month to go or whatever, they finally got. He, I think Barry just happened to run into Shirley Bassey somewhere at some function. And Girl, uh, please, and please, back. please. Just... There's, there's a couple of other fun little bits about the score. Um, again, they they follow on with the uh, the little con homages when he does the the keypad to the. Uh, uh, laboratory. It's the the five notes from Close Encounters. Oh yes. 
And uh, also, when he's in the, the <laughs> desert area, there's Elmer Burstein's theme to The Magnificent Seven. Yeah, which I couldn't place. place at the time because the visual cues were all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching it just going, what's that from? Yeah, it's not like <coughs> It doesn't help that Roger Moore's dressed like Clint Eastwood. No. no <laughs> you, can't, you, can't, he... you can't expect to hear, like, good, bad, the ugly things are coming, you know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and uh, Barry brings back the the double the double seven theme very briefly during yeah, when we get the boat chase. Oh, the boat chase! Yeah, absolutely. Because and it's it's fairly subtle. It's not yes. very long, and you can almost forget it. I mean, yeah. I think I said at the outset of this series, you don't hear it after like diamonds, and I was wrong. And it, yeah, and it, 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 it is kind of forgettable here, but which is a shame. I, yeah, I, I would never argue with use of it though. I love the 007 theme. Absolutely, definitely. I, I seem to remember there was was it the um, 007 dossier or something, the the sort of PC CD-ROM game that was released in ninety five, ninety six, and it was you could hear it on one of those menus, I think. And I was like, oh, it's good to hear that again. Um, but apart from that, you only hear it twice throughout the whole series, which is a real shame. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so that's a side note. Anyway. No, that's absolutely fine. I just, I just, I just realised we're talking about like good music here, and we're talking about you know different themes and ideas, and we're about to move on <laughs> to um... oh, <laughs> disco, disco, disco. Uh, to a score that I embarrassingly like, and I, I've got no defence. I've, I've got no defence for this at all. Uh, for your eyes only, Charlie. <laughs> I know. I I really like your eyes only score. Uh... <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's it's all right. I, I mean, don't hate it. I don't love it. It's yeah. But it's disco, disco, disco. No, I, I, no, no, no. Spies more disco, disco, disco. Uh, I, sure. I think I think this one's just a little bit more like cheesy, upbeat, kind of almost pop, almost like a, a little bit. I think, but I think it's more. I think the thing, the places where it stands out are the things where it gets remembered for. But you know, as a whole, it, I think it's actually quite effective. You know, I mean, I remember on our actual review, you know, right from the get-go, again, it's got a similar kind of up-tempo feel to what uh, Live at Die had. Are you talking about the gun barrel, Chris? Yeah. Let's play that right now. This is the gun barrel to For Your Eyes Only. Uh, which kind of does set a bit of an intent. Again, it's not as jarring as something like Golden Eyes, but you are aware you're going to get something a bit different musically here, aren't you? Yeah, mm. definitely. But yeah. but even when that ends, I'm not sure how that when that clip ends. But like when you see Roger Moore at the graveyard, and you it, it kind of you kind of got like a guitar wah wah pedal going on in the background, and you got like sort of a little hint of the main theme, like sort of and I thought. That is really, really well done. That is really yeah. well crafted. You do I need think. a bit of disco when you cut into the vicar. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but but it's things. Totally. It, doesn't, it doesn't sound disco. It just especially like this is like the beginning of the eighties. Like tell that you know, like this is. I think it just adds a little bit of like a little bit of statement, a little bit like yeah, we're we're kind of moving with the times. Um, I think from the moment where like it goes all like where like Bond's like sort of got control of a helicopter, it's just, like all right. Uh, that, if, yeah, that's if, where I, it goes. if I can find it, this is a bit of a muse, a bit from that part of the film. Uh, I'm not in love with this, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. When we get a little bit further onto the film, to, uh, in terms of cheesy music, I like. I quite like the winter sports music. Uh, <laughs> which here's a bit from that before we pass on to Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie, what do you want to tell us about this score? Oh, it's, it's, it, I'm not a huge fan of it, and I have trouble listening to it outside of, outside the film. I think it's, it is slightly effective in the film, um, but I think it's, it's maybe a bit of at odds with the kind of the kind of approach they took of kind of a more serious kind of bond, which again doesn't necessarily work with Roger anyway. Um, I like Chris mentioned the little kind of doo doo melody, the two kind of notes um, yeah. using that is is really quite clever. And the, the big ski chase, there's some really kind of suspenseful kind of use of piano in there. Um, but there's a couple of like, the, 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 the two CV chase um, is like mega cheesy. Um, although apparently originally that was kind of like a much more kind of country kind of feel um, and which they played and then immediately decided it was totally the wrong approach. I can't imagine um, country music on this film so <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think possibly... by going skiing, what should we get? Garth Brooks, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I think maybe the, the, some of the best music in the film is is the ending with that horrible, horrible bitch, Margaret <gasps> Thatcher. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it wasn't really. I know, though. I know, but just 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 give her a slap. <laughs> um, it's yeah, it's it's like in Indiana Jones where they where they have the someone playing Hitler. Um, oh, it's the cringe. same sort of effect. Um, but, but... What, what, the guy from Grey's Yeah, yeah, yeah Mr. Oh, yeah. Mr. Bronson. Yeah, yeah, he was also in um, Empire yeah. Strikes Back. You need but... some good music after you've had the shock of a parrot turning important. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but they have this really kind of British trumpets and then they have this kind of really land of oh, hope and glory yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of... And it's beautiful, it's lovely, it's really, really nice. Um, it's a nice touch. Yeah, but, and, and I love the song. I think the song's great. And uh, it's interesting that they actually got her to sing in the credits. Of course, uh, and we've just forgotten that. Uh, let's put a little bit of that on. Um, this is Sheena Easton's For Your Eyes Only. For your eyes only 
During the show, uh, I was reminded by Chris this could have been Blondie, and I immediately soiled myself with excitement <laughs> until uh, Chris pointed out the song was shit, and I and I honestly can't remember <laughs> it, but I'm sure it must be online. So we must uh, just play a clip if we can find it. This is the Blondie version of For Your Eyes Only. Now, I can't remember it, and I haven't found the clip yet, so having confidently just introduced it to you all, I've got no idea which one I've preferred, because I haven't heard the second one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I'm assuming it's shit, because Chris said, and he's got the voice of an angel, he knows music. Charlie, do you remember this Blondie song? I don't. It's the one thing I forgot to research. Because um, I saw it and I, I remembered it, but then forgot yeah. to actually look it up again. I've heard it before, and I don't think it was ever as good as. Um... I mean, look, look, let's face it: if it was memorable, you would have remembered yeah. part of it. And that's the thing; it's not memorable. It's it kind of vaguely reminds me about the Alice Cooper take because it's like a, a like a, a kind of pop rock band doing something, but it just doesn't. Fit. It feels yeah. better by numbers. I, w- I would have liked to of... have heard Debbie Harry doing the Sheena Easton song. I thought that I would have thought that would be yeah. quite interesting. Because I love, because I love Debbie Harry, but um, right, I think that's just you, Charlie. <laughs> <clears throat> but to, to be fair, Machine Easter, I think she probably provided better vocal for it anyway. It, it works. I can't, it I can't, does you know, work. Like, in, in, in fairness to um, Debbie Harry, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying like who's better. But who's better for that Chris, song? Chris, during the show, you genuinely it. floated the idea of the parrot fucking popping up during the <laughs> So, you know, I, I'm not, <laughs> on this particular... They should have done. Just have a parrot singing it. Oh, dear. Oh, God, that was a funny joke. Sung by Max the Parrot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
uh, the the winter, as I say, the winter sports music are kind of like um, it stands out. I, I, it has dated horribly, obviously, but I kind of like it in and of its place. But when you watch the film, you kind of like you kind of go back to when this was acceptable. So you're okay with it? Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. Like Goldeneye sounded shit at the time. Whereas I can imagine at the time this was like all right, this was kind of like coming out on a lot of scores. I remember as a kid when the Gumball came out, I was like, oh, it's all shiny and modern. <laughs> like, like, oh, this is so, so left field. <laughs> but, yeah, it's like, plus she's like, you've been starved of Bond for, well, particularly for me, because it, it just felt like forever that Bond hadn't come out. Uh, so by the time Goldeneye came out, it was like, oh my god. you ready for anything? It's like, oh, oh, oh my god, it's like completely modernised. I yes, know, Bond's but back. at least now a woman. <laughs> 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 we're getting ahead of ourselves. We are. And it's got a cracker it's in got it. What? Cracker. It's, you know, it's got cracker and sharp oh, oh, in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry. But, so we'll yeah, yeah. But you mean literally um, a so, cracker. Yeah. <laughs> it was Christmas. I think the choice is next is Octopussy or Never Say Never Again. Well, in re- if we go in release order, we go to Octopussy next. Which I can bear, I think, in line with me and the film in general, I cannot remember shit all of this score. So I'm going to let you all talk amongst yourselves while I sit here quietly seething at the existence (laughs) of this fucking film. Good luck, everyone. I'll see you when we get to Never Say Never Again. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, the score is, like, the main theme, just like, as Barry does, just, yeah... It's just kind of like embellished in the score, I think, which I think kind of works. It, it, I think it transcends the film for what it is, even though like the whole idea of like two of a kind doesn't really translate in the script. But yes, yeah, it's, it's very sappy uh, and very kind of. Fr- well, it goes for lush romance, doesn't it? I think I think I think it's a lovely song and. Um... It was originally going to be American Laura Branigan before they went through for, for Rita Coolidge, um, and uh, I think I think it's 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 a good song, and I think the melody is really nice. And again, the way the way the melody, time and again, the way John Barry uses that melody, um, makes it stand out from the rest of the score. Which yeah, I, I don't think the score's really. Other than that, there's not a lot. Apparently, <clears throat> it's got it uses the James Bond theme a lot. Um, and apparently that was because of Never Say Never Again. So they wanted to kind of reinforce that this, the Octopussy, was the um, was the real James Bond film. Um, so it's why they use yeah. the music so much. Um, I kind of like that it's not intent. It's not like over the top, um, kind of Asian. Um, they don't intentionally go for those crazy kind of melodies that a lot of similar films might do. Kind of like some some people, they just lazily kind of used to set the scene, kind of like um, instantly, kind of like the cheesy kind of like. It's like Austin Powers really took the piss really well out of it um, <laughs> by using all, the, all those kind of old. It's one of the things I always remember Mike Myers is like it's the law of films, whenever you cut to England, you got to go. Exactly. I don't think you cut to China, it's like. 
Yeah, it's quite refreshing like that, isn't it? It's like because obviously you spend a lot of time in, in, in Jaipur, you don't hear a lot of the traditional Indian instruments. And that exactly, thing. although you do hear the James Bond theme being played um, by a snake child. <laughs> Use this to play with your ass. Oh. <laughs> I, I bet Dave loves that bit. That's his favourite scene. <laughs> He's seething in the corner, you can hear him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, while while the tennis player like, like, <laughs> would the score have been better if Roger wasn't but... too fucking old. <laughs> Sorry, anyway, I'm I'm going back to seething now for a bit. Charlie, do you think uh, Roger Moore uh, looks quite quite youthful? Yes, this was the next one that he looks older. I think. <laughs> um, I think he's certainly getting on <laughs> a fair bit. I, I think. Uh, yeah, I think for your eyes only was the was the time when he really started to, uh, especially next to. Um, the, the 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 skater. Oh, BB. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, BB. Next to that, that was frightening. Kind of. Like I didn't realize. Yeah, but at least Adam you Johnson territory. Yeah, yeah. How yeah. can you? I, I mean, <laughs> that says everything you need to know about Roger Moore's bond. That he doesn't <laughs> fuck his way into statu- a statutory rape charge, and we're all like, <laughs> we're all like high fiving him and giving him a shoulder carry for that for his moral fucking courage. <laughs> It's like, well, you don't fuck her because she's a child. That's not <laughs> difficult. But because it's Roger Moore, we're like, good moral fortitude there, Rog. The thing is, though, can you see... Yes, of course I now? could. I think she was meant to be, like, what, 18? 17, 18 or something? So not technically jailbait. <laughs> Whatever. But no, I didn't realise until recently that, like, for example, also, or like Roger, that it was meant to be, like, a different actor in that role. So maybe that's why... They weren't pushing the kind of love interest so hard, I guess. No pun intended. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to push it, push it. He didn't do any pumping in that film. Let's just say that. Uh, what, what, in For Your Eyes Only? <laughs> he did. He asked her how she was after any pump. <laughs> we discussed it at the time. Oh, no, I'm joking. Never mind. <laughs> um, okay, moving on. Uh, so... Talk, yeah, talk, speaking of Roger Moore being too old. Uh... Well, it's not Roger Moore next. We move on. We move oh, on. Shit, yeah, sorry. Well, okay. fucking, well, speaking of Roger Moore, he's sure Connery being too old. <laughs> what a, a horrific score. Um, oh, God. Um, yeah, this should have been James Horner. That would have been immense. Oh, my God. Well, I don't know if it would have been good, bad, or indifferent, but the fact is his last score before this was um, The Wrath of Khan, which I really like. And they don't. They go and get... What's his name? I've lost his name. Michael uh, Michel Legrand. Michel Legrand, that's it. Yeah, I, I knew it in review because I remember talking about it in review. And this score is all shades of batshit, isn't it? This all is shades probably, of jazz. This is probably the closest to Goldeneye, where like at any point you pause it and go, what have they put that there for? Give <laughs> <laughs> me the pipe chase, which is just like a, a lot of dumb voice. It's very it's smooth jazz, FM. jazz in it. That's <laughs> what it is. Yeah. Random jazz. This is got to be one of the occasions where you look at the uh, the people involved and what actually came out yeah it's exactly kinda... it. everyone who was involved in production of this film have gone on to do or have done better things yeah you've um, got so like... you've got like star wars you've got like windows of my mind everything like that it's like what what's going on yeah, here i mean Mich- michelle Legrand won three oscars <laughs> before this <laughs> um and windows I mean... of your mind windows of your mind that's what i meant yeah sorry 
I, no, I'm not. I didn't hear what you said, but like just that and the Thomas Crown affair, and you just think, how did he come out with this? <laughs> Everybody bought their it's B a, game to this movie. Funnily enough, it, it's a bit like James Horner's like Spider-Man score, the Amazing Spider-Man score, and you go, how did he produce that? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I kind of like that score. I like, I like the main. All oh, right then. It wasn't amazing, but it was decent. Well, like all, 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 the, all the rooftop theme has like really got nice melody to it. it really is. It's just that one. Anyway, but then I, I, I kind of defend those recent films. Yeah, of course you would. They're shit. Yeah, well, yeah. It's a psychological thing with you, can it? Films everyone hates. I generally enjoy... Let's try and bring a... Well, I was about to say let's bring some structure, but actually I've got no interest in bringing structure at all. But I just like the warped VHS pornography start to this song. This is uh, uh, this, this is um, uh, <laughs> never say never again by Herb Palpert's wife. Now, that song was nearly performed by Bonnie Tyler, I believe. And Chris said in review, that's just not her type of song. I mean, maybe like, the 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 alternate uh, song is a bit more Bonnie Tyler. You appreciate, oh, yeah. the, you appreciate more of her big power ballads, don't you, really? Yeah, the, the, the actual I just, song. I just don't know what they were thinking um, with this song. I mean, the, the song's awful. It's mainly the first few keys, which just sound off-key. And the song is really, really insipid. She doesn't have a particularly horrendous voice, but the song's not very good. It's just very, like, it, it, it just reeks of, oh, that'll do. You're trying to launch something where Eon, whether you like Roger Moore, dislike him, dislike the films at this point or not, their style is down pat and it's quite classy. And just this, this really insipid song played off over that horrible sort of like curtain of 007 logos. Mm. <laughs> it just looks awful. It really very does. Very eighties, very eighties. And I struggle to remember much of the score except the bits that stand out as wildly inappropriate. Yeah, I, th- I think the whole thing is inappropriate. It's weird, kind of jazzy, smooth, um, and yeah, it just it just clashes completely with the uh, the whole s- style of the film, um, and it's probably one of the uh, the reasons. That, um, it's very much maligned. But not unfairly. No. Oh, I, I don't think so yeah. at all. I, <clears throat> yeah. You know, uh, 
even even something like the Golden Eye score, which we'll talk about next time you're on, um, there are bits of it that, if you take in isolation, aren't bad at all. And and yeah. some of the awful bits kind of colour that. Mm. You know, the bit the bits in the hills above Monte Carlo with the you know with them going past the bikes and all the rest of it, that makes you forget like the Golden Eye Overture a bit later on, which is pretty good. But yeah. when I listen to this, I, I can't rem- I don't remember anything good. And when you see what else this guy did, you just think, w- were they up against it for time? Yeah. Or, or was he given? Because obviously they're normally in uh, some kind of discussion with the director, and you think, well, what came? What what um, came? You know, what did they? What were they asked for? What was he asked to produce? Or did you just buy like some some work he was just like oh, I don't give a shit about yeah yeah it. maybe it's it's a conundrum but not one really worth um, <laughs> worrying about to be honest with you um, yeah it's it's a footnote it really is uh, the film we were quite kind to really I mean, we were quite realistic about it but we were quite kind to. The score is is really really weak. It might be the if it was part of the official Bond series, I think it would be the weakest Bond score. Yeah, absolutely. But two years later, I think we get a really good score. Mm. I think I think actually I think it's probably one of my favourite Barry's. I think it's definitely my favourite of the Roger Moore's uh, scores, and that's kind of bold bold statement for what is kind of like a very mixed film. I don't know if I could. I think Moon, Moonraker is, is still the best um, of that lot, but I think Avita Kill um, is just fantastic. Um, again, I, I think the, the, the song is very good. Um, the the Duran Durang Strict Barry song. Um, and again, the way he uses that melody, both, both sections, the verse, the, uh, the verse melody and the chorus, um, is just absolutely brilliant, especially using the chorus as a kind of fanfare. Um, it's it's just spectacular at times. Yeah, the bit where it kind of slows down and it's go and it goes like duh, 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 yeah duh, duh, yeah. Um, I think I think we get that kind of as we get like the big scene at route of San Francisco mm. and in Zor- in Zorin's blimp, don't we? Um, but should, uh, should what we do you want to hear first? Let, let's uh, start with the Duran Duran song. Um, so yeah, this is a view to a kill. I think it's a bit love it or hate it, but I I love it. I think it's really great. This is Duran Duran's A View to a Kill. A sacred wine, a 
And you're right. And I think what what's different from the next score, which we'll probably discuss next time. Charlie's on. Uh, I, I do kind of. I end up. I prefer the Living Daylight score to this, and I think because of that, I, I, I'm not overly critical on this score, but it gets forgotten because two years later, it's a better film and for me a better score. Um, uh, but the difference is, like I think you've just alluded to, Chris, they weave the song into the score really well here, whereas in two years' time, because he didn't get on with Aha at all. He's weaving. He's weaving in the pretenders more than he's weave, than he's weaving in our. Yeah. Um, let's. Uh, you were talking about in review. You were talking about the skiing section and the music that, and you said it was evoking majesties. What the, beach boys uh, in the school? Not the Beach Boys. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's why we all love majesties. The Beach Boys. <laughs> Only kidding. <laughs> Yeah, I know you were, but even so, that was really funny. Um, so, yeah, what else in the score stands out to you, Charlie? I think it is just there's a lot of real kind of nice suspense, but it's it's just so lush. And again, um, because of the I guess the demands of the film and and Roger, um, however old he was when he did that film, um, you certainly one hundred and fifty-seven. <laughs> Which is pretty good because he was actually 204 two years earlier when he did Octopus. <laughs> he doesn't age by conventional wisdom at all. back in time. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, just when, when you when you compare that, like you said, to The Living Daylights um, and the way that film is just kind of action-packed mm. um, and kind of when you think of Vita Akil... Um, I kind of struggle apart from that opening sequence. Kind of, it, they kind of just basically take the Duran Duran song yeah. and make it vaguely romantic. And then the bit, yeah, there's like there's a track called "Wine with Stacy," uh, which kind of sums it up. There's no which that, sounds, that sums up Stacy. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's kind of no, um, uh, there's there's kind of no big kind of action here. It's just like him um, getting Stacy drunk. Um, and it is just basically an instrumental reading of the song, but it is absolutely beautiful. Is there one called Keisha Stacy? <laughs> well, I'm sure, I'm sure he deposited some cheese. <laughs> oh, yeah, but um, but I, I think the thing that really stands out from this score is that, that I mean, apart from the Duran Duran song, there is like there is a, a, another theme that is used consistently throughout the film. Usually, whenever there's like an action scene happens, it happens in the ski. Uh, and it and it happens like uh, basically whenever Roger Moore's fighting Max Zorin or or like fighting like the goons and Stacy Cal- Stacy Salty. It's this kind of like I, I don't know what I don't know how to describe it, but it's really effective. It always comes up uh, when I uh, plug in the the Blu-ray and the screen comes up and my, my, and my ears just prick up. What happens to, what happens to your prick? I, I, <laughs> well, it's it's, it's costly stuff anyway. It's, it's, um, it's what happens the... during Roger Moore films? <laughs> yeah, that, that'll do it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, so is that the um, the Majesties one? Because it's it's kind of like the, the kind of do 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 do, and then the do 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 on top. It it's kind it's. Kind, it's kind of ram- it's kind of like rumble mm. like, like and you hear this like sort of like proper like rock guitar just kind of like sort of squeal in. It's just like oh my god, that sounds amazing. 
You know, and it's just like, why? I can't, I almost wish they bring it back and use yeah. them in more Bond films because I think it's that could be that could be a really classic part of the Bond suite of music. It couldn't could. It? it could be the new yeah. 007 theme. Yeah, it could. I mean, yeah, it could be like a, a theme for someone like on its own accord. It's that good, you know. And I just think, oh my god, that's so good. And that's kind of why I I adore this score. Like, it's part of the reason why I enjoy this film so much. Yeah, the score's it's so good. Because I love that score, and it kind of elevates from kind of things that go wrong with with the musical. Is the score just like? Wait, it's kind of like an average film, but like the score transcends it. I think. Yeah, it, it does away th- with all the eighty synth kind of stuff, and which isn't which isn't you know I think by any, by any means. I think but, yeah. one one thing about um, the Roger Moore films um, is there's nothing really comparable in them to the use of the uh, the double O seven theme that he did for the Connery films. So there's there's nothing to really tie them together, um, especially considering some of them were by other composers as well. Yeah, you hear the 007 so, and you immediately think Connery, because there's only one yeah. film that wasn't Roger Moore, and it was orchestrated kind of different, um, and it wasn't in the Lazenby film, so it is very much Sean Connery's James Bond. Yeah. So Roger with, doesn't have that. Yeah, the, the, the consider there's no real kind of consistency, and especially when you come to like um, like Furiosa and Octopussy, um, certainly not the strongest of the uh, of the lot. Then you um, it just kind of feels a bit half-hearted. So then when you look at the kind of Roger Moore kind of period overall, um, it does there's no kind of coherence. So kind of it's certainly much. That's why I imagine much more of the individual bits, like Bond seventy seven, like the uh, the McCartney music, things like that, um, that, that stand out a lot more. Yeah, I mean, I, it was a it's a much more varied era. I mean, I, I you kind of figured we'd have more to talk about, but at the same time, it's it's nowhere near as rich for me. We were talking about great score after great score. In the first show you you came on, particularly from like from Russia with Love onwards, yeah. Um, and here I think well, like Moonraker's a little bit special, and I think yeah, I think Chris is right. A View to a Kill kind of is, and then it's like yeah, there, there's there's good bits. I, I mean, Bill Conti's a bit love it or hate it. It, 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 not even love it or hate it, but kind of kind of like it or hate it. Yeah. Yeah. You like. And uh, uh, but apart from that, I kind I really of like I do it. like it myself, but I can understand why people wouldn't. And apart from that, they're all kind of a little bit uncontroversial. I, yeah, I don't I think, think. Yeah, Bond's, they're all right. Yes, yeah, it's, it's like Bond seventy seven is the kind of one that's where kind of like is, is a real kind of marmite one, essentially because of that. And again. On the um, cause, uh, we don't really talk much about the the actual soundtracks to the films, but um, the, this because of the way um, all the cues for uh, the Spy Love Me were composed, they're all very very short cues. So nothing from the, the actual actual soundtrack to the film appears on the album. It's mm. instead stuff that was rewritten and re-recorded by Marvin Hamish, um to kind of bulk out the album and it's it's like a lot of it is there's there's the music from the uh, the Mojave Club and there's the pyramids music and that kind of thing mm-hmm. um and even Bond 77 isn't quite the one that's in the film um so there's a lot of stuff so um that you only hear that you can only hear in the film 
Um, and maybe I don't know if that kind of alters people's opinion of it as well. Um, because certainly in the film, there's a lot of stuff that does remind you of uh, of Barry. But again, that's maybe that's why, because people kind of see it as something that's kind of Barry-esque rather than kind of like something individually Hamlet, like maybe like George Martin certainly is. Yeah, I mean, I was I was quite happy with it. You know, I, I was happy for the a bit more variety. And like I say, I I, quite, I like George Martin's score quite a bit. Um, and actually, I think this era is marked by some of. Uh, certainly two or three of them are like, amongst Barry's weaker scores. So I, I was happy for the variety, but it's not the richest era. I mean, when you come on next time towards the end, I mean, we've covered eight films this time. We'll be covering ten next time. And next time we've got a really good Barry score with The Living Daylights. We've got the, um, uh, what's he called? Michael Kamen. We've got the Michael Kamen score. We've got uh, uh, several, you know, uh, we've got the Eric Serra score to oh, have a good laugh mm. at. And then, and then the David Arnold. And then right? all the David Arnold scores, which are interesting in and of themselves as like uh, I think that, that's a the homage. Thing. Yeah, again, because, um, I mean, I've, I've talked about this before in terms of mm. how people have reacted to Thomas Newman's music for, yeah. the, uh, um, for the, the, Daniel, the last two Daniel Craig films. Um, and how there is very much a sense that a lot of people want David Arnold back um, in terms of because of the continuity that he provided before. But what David Arnold really did that was, was definitely both a benefit and maybe a hindrance was that he was very much kind of homaging Barry on well, a lot he, he of his... He kept it all frozen in amber, didn't he? Yeah. He has very much the Barry sound alike. So. Yeah. And and that's why I love Live and Let Die so much because it does kind of break off from some of that, and some of the individual pieces really sound different to anything that any of the composers have uh, have, have done there on since. So, who would you like to see score? Uh, you asked this question we did. Last time, we right? talked about it last time. We had some questions okay. last time. I'm not sure we have any this time. No, we didn't have any listener did questions we go out this time. Questions we forgot. No, Never I didn't. Mind. <laughs> we didn't have any listener questions. We're gonna, get, we're gonna get bumper questions. We're gonna we're gonna answer forty seven questions next time <laughs> to make up for it. We'll do it next time, but whether people ask for them or not, we'll make some up if you don't, no, and we'll, sorry, we'll I'll... name people who follow us. So, so Tom Barwick, if you're listening, you will be asking questions next time, whether you do or not. Um, uh, and Brian Dobson as well, and other people. Brian, you'll be asking questions as well. Several Brian's will be asking questions. And, the, um, and and basically, if you don't ask them yourself, they're going to be embarrassingly poor questions you make up and put in your name. <laughs> I, I I will briefly answer Chris's question, and um, the the person I would really like to see to score the next one um, would be a, a guy called Joe Kramer, um, who has just the last score he did was um, for Mission Impossible: Rogue Nation, and he did there an amazing job of not only using the iconic Mission Impossible themes, but also bringing his own music in and just making it just an absolutely fabulous action score. And I think especially when you um, look at those two films, Spectre and Mission Impossible um, of last year, there's only one um, that comes out as a clear winner, both musically and as a film, and it isn't Spectre. 
No, it isn't. I mean, somehow we I knew all, you were going to say Eurovision. We all got kind of. We, we all, I say all of us. Certainly, Becca and I got a bit caught up in the Spectre hype. I, I would freely admit, and I still kind of like it, and I still kind of like the score. But if I wasn't a Bond fan, there would only be one winner. I like Spectre because I'm a Bond fan, and it feels like a Bond film to me, and it feels like a good new modern Bond film to me. But Mission Impossible. The thing is that you want to like it more. You want to like Spectre more, and that's the problem. I mean. I I mean I'm I mean, I will I will happily sit down and watch and enjoy Spectre. However, it, it would still have like like I mean my I've gone through my issues with Spectre, and you know I will forever say the last act is just proper. Oh, terrible! Yeah, definitely. You know, and it just and it just let and and also apart from the issue, which is completely blindly obvious way before you even watched the Sonic film, we all spotted it way before it, when it was fucking <laughs> announced. It's like, oh, right, well, you, why are you doing this way? Oh, oh, first of all, so is he, is he playing, oh, so he's playing Blofeld. Well, he's not playing Blofeld, he's playing the character. Sure, oh, no, really, well, he's playing Blofeld, isn't he? And, yeah, <sighs> and the it still hurts, is... doesn't it, Chris? And it, it, it's just a dumb thing. It's just a really fucking stupid thing to do. It's like I've listened. To, I've listened to Sam Mendes, like he talks about how he didn't put the gun barrel in. I'm not convinced. No, no. It's like, well, you have to leave some suspense, don't you? It's like, no, you don't. Not when it's blindly obvious. Make some, make something of a suspense mystery up or something, but don't fucking call it Spectre and then expect to be surprised when Crystal Walton turns out to be with the, I'm sorry. With, the, with the fluffy white cat. <laughs> yeah. It's and and then and then the scar at the end. Nothing surprising about that. I hate that. Like, I hate that. Like Bond. I mean, I think I took the piss out of it at the time. Like, you know, Bond gave him the scar. Bond was his brother. Bo- you know, Bond's the whole reason for Spectre. And Max Zorri was his English teacher. And I think I went off on a whole riff <laughs> about that because it's just fuck off. The whole brotherhood <laughs> thing really annoys but, me, but never mind. I, I mean, so... I don't. Things that I, yeah, I, I don't mind. No, I was just going to say that. Like, I was so ready for this because he was Blofeld. I mean, as much as in the early episodes we said, well, maybe, maybe, that's only covering your own ass. I mean, we knew it was Blofeld. We were totally sure it was Blofeld. And I think the problem is I was so built up for this and for for it to be absolutely horrendous that I ended up kind of like not being as offended by it as I thought I was going to be in the moment. But now you look back on it and you just think that was a really bad idea. I think it was just really bad. They they should have just called it Blofeld because why? Spectre had no real kind of. It's like what was Spectre's kind of plan apart from him wanting to steal Bond's memories? The whole thing. Spectre exists to piss off James Bond. To to steal the bit from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, when Christian Slater says, "I hate you because our father loved you more than me," and that's a way better performance than Christian Slater has given in any <laughs> film. There, Charlie, well done. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I, I forgot you really love Christian Slater, don't you? Uh, <laughs> but uh, but if but I think the problem with Spectre mainly was the fact that. I think they they weren't satisfied with the script and they just balls up even though they had three years to to do it and they just they just didn't have like a script that came together and they just couldn't like fix it in time and it was like oh shit we're shooting now oh oh okay 
and it is. But it's, it's a big screen filmmaking. It, it you've got, you've got like, you know, yeah. you've only got to see the start of films now. The amount of studio logos that come up. It used to be you stick on something like The Godfather. You got the Paramount logo straight into it, and away we go. And I'm not, I'm not talking about any golden age of filmmaking, by the way. I think Hollywood produces more than enough to justify its existence. But when films start now, it's three, four, five logos a lot of the time. And they're all, I presume, having some look at the script. And it does bother me. I don't expect Bond films to be turned around in a year. I debate this on Twitter with people sometimes that they still think that can happen. And I don't actually think it can anymore unless you've already got the sets and the actors and and the scripts written and everything else. But it does bother me when you take three years to produce a film and we're still sat there going scripts a bit undercooked. And that's the biggest sin of Spectre. I mean, I I enjoy it just fine, but you've just tried to sell me a love story and you've completely undercooked that. That was the worst thing in the film for me. Forget the Mendes bit. I thought thought the romance was an absolute embarrassment. For me, I think that was a case of too many cooks in that case. You've got, you know, so many hands in there and it's, it's just a complete mess, really. I mean, it's frustrating. I think, like, Dave Dave said, like, what, what point I made back then. And I think it could have been really good, but it just falls down. On it's completely ruined points, by the third act as well. Really sh- but it really shouldn't, yeah. And it, it's just, it, it's really dumb as well. It pretends that like it's, like, beyond this. And, you know, and it's like, well, you're making really stupid mistakes that, like, that, you know, if it was He's like something else, at art, uh, as art that's actually quite a generic studio film. Yeah. It's really bond by numbers. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. And it, it has some good punchy bits and some, part, some good parts in it, but then at the same time, it's like, well, this could have been awesome and you just completely fluffed it. And it's the, it's the same thing, exactly, as Star Trek Into Darkness. You've got a kind of new, kind of semi reboot. I don't think series. it's as bad as it. I still don't think it's as bad as Into Darkness. I thought oh Into no, Darkness it's not. It's flat not, out fucking but, incompetent. But, but but you've got you've yeah. got this this you've got this kind of semi reboot of the series, and they're thinking, okay, who is the most iconic villain of the the franchise? So they think, oh, okay, we need to put him her in there. Um, how do we do that? So they, oh, you know what? It's the red conning of like quantum as well. Yeah, it's like. Oh, it, it, it's like oh no, it's, it's, it's why Quantum is really ruled by Spectre. What, what really this organization that was controlling everything? Mr. White was Quantum not the head of Quantum. A... That was no. never set up, and now it turns out well he was, and it was just a subset of Spectre. Awful and, retcon. And the worst retcon though is not in a million years was Silver anything to do with Spectre. No, there's yeah, nothing in that character that suggests anything. That's a team player or anything. No, he's always that, going, that... He's doing his own thing. And for and for what gain? And for what gain as well? For what... Yeah, why, why the hell would he be involved in that? Didn't need. Yeah, but yeah, but it doesn't add anything. You just it's just like oh well, because he killed Judy Dench. Well, and so so it's like another little haha. I killed your. I killed the two women in your life. Yeah. Haha. Ridiculous. Uh, Ridiculous. And it's just and it's just like well. The the best way I I think I might have said this before, but I think the best way to to deal with whole quantum spectre thing is to have basically quantum gets disbanded because yeah the, people start finding out who they were, so they kind of like it just kind of like started breaking down. So what a, a member of um, of quantum comes like ah well for my own I spectre there you are spectre comes from the ashes of 
Quantum. It's a completely new organization. I'm a little bit. I'm ideals, a little bit more blah, forgiving done. of that aspect, just because. Yeah, it's rubbish, but at the same time, uh, with the Connery films, there was a slow tease over a number of films, but you kind of mm. knew. They knew. They knew what the books were. They were following the books, but they replaced Smirsh with. Spectre, and when they got to actually the Spectre story, they could do the Blofeld reveal and all the rest of it. With this, they've kind of teased Quantum and then suddenly got the rights to Spectre. And they're totally in love with Daniel Craig as their James Bond. And they're going to want to use their most iconic villain while he's still in the role. He is ambivalent from film to film as to whether he's going to carry on. So you've kind of got to have him against Blofeld. This is in their heads. I'm not saying this is actually the case. But in their heads, they've got to do it. And you go, well, hang on a minute, we had Quantum. And so I can see how they've ended up hamstringing themselves. And I'm kind of reasonably forgiving of it. What I'm less forgiving of with that film is not everything has to be linked to Bond. If you're going to have Blofeld in it, he doesn't need to be given the scar by Bond. They don't need to be brothers. And if you're going to sell us a Tracy or Vesper-type leading lady, you've got to do a bit better than them looking at each other a couple of times, having sex once, and then suddenly they're wildly in love. Because at its best, the Bond yeah. films have sold their love stories better than that. Uh, I, I agree with you, Dave. However, I do generally think that... I think if to do it, I think they should have just like, no, we'll, we'll wait till the next Bond and, and break it in properly and do it properly. Rather than kind of like, oh, quick before Daniel Gray goes. You know, I, th- I just think, don't rush it. Don't, you know, you, you've got something good already. Don't, you, we don't need to see Daniel Gray and Blofeld. You don't. I mean, there's only one Bond know? for whom Blofeld, well, I know there's two actually because of Lazenby. But there's only really two Bonds for who, whom um, Blofeld was dominant out of six. And uh, if you like or if you dislike, for example, Brosnan's Bond or Dalton's Bond, you don't dislike them because there was no Blofeld. Sanchez think, was, mm. was a perfectly... Actually, Sanchez was a terrific villain. Sanchez was fantastic. And I, mm. I think as well the, the problem they have is that this came after Skyfall. Um, Develop that, what do you mean? I mean, the, the reception that Skyfall had. <laughs> the highest rating film, you know. The wrong... Yeah. Yeah, the, the wrong reception <laughs> See, I, I, I actually really like Skyfall. Um, you I'm, Quite, a, I'm a quite big fan, and then there's just a lot of elements in there where I look at Skyfall, um, mm. and then I look at Spectre, and I, and I just kind of think, well, really, you can easily see why Skyfall is like a million dollar film. Well, yeah, I mean, just, just the way it looks for a start. I mean, obviously, Roger Deakins is like the best cinematographer on the planet, um, but Spectre looks so flat, and they're kind of so much of it looked kind of really kind of yellow. And it had no kind of visual flair to it. And the way the action scenes were shot as well, it all just seemed really kind of under-edited. I think Mendes stayed on for the wrong reasons, because whenever he talked about, like, oh, why do you coming back? It's like, well, I felt I, like I set up so much that I need yeah. to kind of, do, like... Do you, want, do you want to make or, almost, another film, though, Sam? But it's like, it's like well, oh. I don't think that's necessary i think someone else could just eat quite easily pick that up i mean i I don't i don't wholly agree on the cinematography but i'm not going to go on about that now because i did it all in review and the thing is i'm in a total minority on that but i would agree on the editing because when he leaves blofeld's base there is no sense of tension at all and he is just killing people with machine guns and all the rest of it which is a very brosnan thing which i don't like very easily Um, escapable 
But it's just it's just so video game. He is just walking openly, not taking any kind of cover. It's like yeah, and it's just like, one single shot. You're not a small target there, Daniel. There's two of you. And shoot <laughs> and shoot something, and the whole thing blows up. I mean, like, and look, and the thing so people give Quantum of Solace shit for like for for one thing going up and the whole building goes up in that. But I I, I find like no one's really saying too much about this respect and it's like <laughs> oh, what the fuck? He shoots one gas tank and the whole right thing yeah, the biggest goes explosion up. ever captured on yeah, film as a practical it, it, effect. He breaks out of Blofeld like Spectre's yeah. base. That explosion that explosion on Spectre's base is the biggest practical no CGI explosion in cinema history. Yeah, commit to film. And, and he shot one gas tank. <laughs> <laughs> he blew it all up. And it, and and it would have been great if it was like a really decent like action sequence to that. But instead, it's like it felt like no one could be asked. And that's damn that was the that's the thing. It felt like no one could be asked. So going back to Mendes, I mean, I didn't see that he did really kind of set anything else up. The, the thing I really liked about Skyfall is that at the end, it did feel like kind of a new beginning. And it felt like it was just kind of set up to be a bit more kind of classical Bond. Um, and then Mendes turns around with all the personal shit again and makes it into bloody Empire Strikes Back for Bond. I, I think my my biggest problem with the Mendes era, if you like, less so the Daniel Craig era, but I, I, I definitely said this in review, and I said this when we were talking about... Um, Never Say Never Again as well. I do get pissed off when Bond films start trying to argue their own existence and viability. And I, I, we've had two films in a row now. Uh, you had Judy Dench arguing in a very memorable bit of Skyfall for the uh, existence of the 00 programme, which the openness of which pisses me off as well. Because he's supposed to be a spy. You know, it's like, well, these are our 00 agents and here's our bro- brochure. You know, it's just like, no, we don't need yeah. that, thanks very much. 007, James Bond was recruited, you know, it's just like little bio of him. It's just, no, we don't want that. But, okay, let's take it that people know the 00 section exists. She argues their case, and Sam Mendes, with no particular subtlety, shows an awful lot of Rafe Fine's reaction, like Rafe finds that the Gareth Mallory character is getting it. He's finally understanding that all this nonsense about that he was coming out with about it's it's not needed anymore was wrong. We go straight into Spectre and once again it's like it's obsolete we don't need it and I don't need the Bond films to be continually arguing their own viability and existence like that. We accept that there's this double O character who goes around the world like killing people and shagging (laughs) <laughs> now that that might be completely anachronistic now, but the films are still popular, so go with it. R- ride that. Just you don't need to be arguing. <laughs> yeah, ride that. Sorry, you say, Becca? I'll say, don't you see it? Happen- well, a really interesting parallel between like this and and the, and the Star Wars: The Force Awakens. Um, just to kind of bring that in. A really random reference. Um, just like they, they both try and hit the same old beats to kind of recreate the sort of the classic elements of the film, as it were. Um, whereas obviously Star Wars was like the highest grossing film of last year. Um, but it's like, well, you, you, you don't see the similar sort of thing happening in Star Wars, do you? You don't see, oh yeah, Jedi Knights are kind of all defunct now. Or, or, yeah, we don't need Jedi anymore. But no, no, but I'm just sort of saying it's yeah. that kind of mythology, you know, sort of like feeding into it and 
know, it's, yeah, it's still I mean, relevant. He doesn't. It's not. They're not questioning their own viability. It's still I, relevant. Yes, yeah, I think the, the thing about Star Wars as well is is that um, they kind of have had those issue, had those all kind of original kind of themes and stuff as a structure and as a kind of backbone for them to bring new elements in, which Spectre didn't do. No, there was, there was nothing, and and also going back to the thing about the Double O program, um, it all just set up that awful line from Ralph Fiennes when he said, "You know." Well, we've all got one of those then, haven't we? Um, yeah, clearly. <laughs> actually, yeah, it was just, yeah, I know. And the thing is, I'm, I'm being, it's almost like I'm falling into fashion now. I gave it like rave reviews when it came out. That was way too over the top, I will admit that. But I still actually quite like Spectre. But, yeah, there are things about it that annoy me. And one of, almost chief amongst them is the relevance of, you know, and this whole relevance theme that he's had across his two films, Mendes, let it go. Yeah. Let it go. We've got a double O programme, that's fine. One. I don't want to go into the next film and they're under, the double O programme is under some other kind of threat. Let it go. Yeah, take a, book out of, take a leaf out of Disney's book and, you know. And <laughs> Steve, yeah, <laughs> yeah, take a leaf sure. out of Disney's book and piss off Quentin Tarantino. Uh, <laughs> they, they have. Which they the, the, have. The, um, the, uh, yeah, they have actually. Yeah, the have. the thing, the, the Star Wars one is actually quite interesting because Star Wars to me, The Force Awakens, reminds me much more of Goldeneye. Goldeneye is much more uh, a safety first reintroduction to the series. Now, I like Goldeneye, but that's a lot of the reason I can't put it like that near the top. I, I just think it was very, very safe, that film. But it, it played some old beats to remind you that Bond's back, Bond's there. But it didn't, a, apart from the sexist, misogynist dinosaur line, which was kind of throwaway and forgotten about pretty much straight afterwards, even though it's a great scene, it, it didn't spend the film saying, we are relevant, we promise. After six years away, it had the confidence to come back and just give a nod in that direction and then get on with it. And Spectre didn't do that. And Skyfall, which is arguably a better film, didn't do that either. And I I don't need to be seeing that. It, it's getting... It's crossing the line between vermicillitude or whatever it's called. And Yeah, that's the word. Um, <laughs> it, it's it's crossing the line between that and just ludicrously attempting to live in the real world, which this series cannot do. I know. I just I just I just hope they do better next time. To be honest, let's do better. <laughs> hope Craig goes out with a uh, yeah. I hope Craig goes out with better than Spectre. Uh, yeah, well, it, it'll be a new director next time. The thing is, they start pre-production around next month, I think. And let's see who's writing. Let's see what they come up with. You know, I, I really. I don't know. It 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 all feels. It needs new blood. I didn't. Thing is, I I kind of quite like Spectre, but I didn't actually want Mendes back. I, I think he was oh, kind of a one and done for me. He doesn't quite give the tone and feel I actually want from a Bond film. This is a completely different podcast altogether. But I think the sooner they start adapting the continuation novels, the better. I think. Um, but that's I, another I discussion for another time. I haven't read enough of them. I do think, yeah, except zero minus ten, of course. I don't think the handover of Hong Kong would work now. No, that's irrelevant now. But unless they steal it in the pre-title and then give it back in the rest of the film, (laughs) 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 it's borrowing China again. Oh, (laughs) which story would you like to see done? 
Is there one in particular you think, oh, that would be really good? I think um, some of the most recent ones, I think Carte Blanche, uh, Jeffrey Dewey's one, that would was very cinematic. That'd make right. a great movie, I think. That, also, was, that was literally a continuation, though, wasn't it? It was that very was, literally a continuation, yes, it that was. was. That's um, the Fleming era. But also, it would be good for, um, oh, what was it? Uh, oh, King's Davis, Colonel Sun. I'd love for that to be made for the screen. Those, those are my two picks, anyway, but I say that's another podcast for another time. I don't know why they I, I, they don't seem to have mined much of that, you know. Maybe that's the right issue. If, if a book is written close enough to pre-production starting, then you'll get the predictable Daily Mail shit article about how they can <laughs> exclusively reveal the next film's going to be called Carte Blanche, which is normally <laughs> bollocks. They've, one of the writers seen it as he walked past Waterstones in the morning. Oh, have that. Um, and that's about it. I mean, for a minute, there, there was a stories about Spectre was going to be called Carte Blanche, which was just never the case. Um, no, yeah, well, no, it's Daily Mail being lazy pricks. But, um, I, I, yeah, I, I, but I've never seen any credible suggestions that they were going to adapt. No, I think, I think there's, a, there's a right issue involved in that. But I just personally, I think it would be interesting. Maybe yeah. it's also just the case that they don't want to kind of go back to something that's already out there. Well, it, I suppose, obviously, the point would be you could very easily find out what's going to happen in that film, whereas Spectre was all kinds of unpredictable. We know how that turned out. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's who? You don't say. <laughs> You're a dick. I do wonder. I do wonder in Skyfall why 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 he walked out at mention of what turned out to be the name of his house. <laughs> you know, if he'd grown up in some chavy area and they'd gone like Costa Bomb, and he'd walked, <laughs> and he'd walked out in disgust, and it just turns out to be some terrorist council house or something. I don't quite understand that. Housing estate. Yes. It wasn't like some of them out of land. It could all be like, yeah, could all have been like. But, yeah, and the other thing was, you got Vesper in the first film going, uh, or the first Craig film going, but you uh, you were there on the charity of others. You know, he wasn't born into wealth. No. And you see this fucking yeah. great estate with a couple of different. Yeah. In the middle of nowhere. Fucking think this stuff through. You know, continuity either matters or it doesn't. And in the Craig era, the problem is it, it's. It's tried to enslave itself to um, continuity and piss all over it at the same time. <laughs> you can't really have it both ways. You can't do both. No, you can. And the other thing is, um, I thought he was raised by Albert Finney's character. What happened to all this? To, what happened with the whole temporary guardianship bollocks? What about Aunt Charmian as well? <gasps> See? See? <laughs> See what happened to Aunt Charmian as well? You have to go back to read the uh, Young Bond novels. Oh, okay. Um, I haven't read those. Mind you, you did have the Jane Moneypenny books, didn't you? No, she's not called Jane Moneypenny, so... <laughs> I, don't, I don't think they're canon somehow. I don't they don't recast it as some kid smoking and putting it about. I really don't want that. <laughs> anyway, so to, so to summarise, I hope you've enjoyed the last half an hour on the music of Bond. We kind of just reviewed Spectre yes. again, really. <laughs> Just, just harsher because, like, it, you know, we got a bit embarrassed. That we, we, just a recap we, yeah, before we, we go we into it again. We raved about it and then rocked him out of the sense of difference, and we're like, "Oops, uh, yeah, it's crap." 
<laughs> any other points you'd like to raise, Charlie? <laughs> uh, no, not that I can think the of. Um, on to the uh, the Dalton era. Yeah, we got Dal- we're going to get you back at the end of the series where we've got ten to cover. We're going to cover Dalton, Brosnan, and Craig. Right. Okay. So that's going to yeah. be ten films next time. You had to set. set- and a nice mixture of uh, comparisons mm. as well. I think. He's got errors too. Obviously. Yeah, we got yeah, got a bit of Barry. Eric then, Sarah. Um... Oh. and Sarah <laughs> Arnold Newman. Caymans K- are looking. Yeah, I look forward to that. Way. All right. So, uh, Charlie, where can we find you on the internet? www.filmsonwax.co.uk Okay, and do you have a social media presence you would like to share? Um, yes, it is Films on Wax um, at, on Twitter, and uh, you can uh, go to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash filmsonwax. Okay, and where can we find you, Becca, online? I am at RV Movies on Twitter, and that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well... It, it, isn't, it isn't, but she's not uh, telling you, listeners. Uh, <laughs> she just doesn't want you to know, even though she consistently comments on do you expect us to talk threads so you could find her really easily, and she retweets us and stuff like that, so she's wait, not wait, in, in terms of Facebook, I don't have a professional and a personal, I've only got a personal one, so there it is. Yeah. Yeah, so you can easily friend her if you follow her. Yeah, you can find out where I am. Where can I find you, Chris she can easily try to. You can easily try to friend her. That's not to say she'll give in to your overtures. I might accept. I might not, depending on who you are. Chris, what about you, buddy? <laughs> what do I? Do, uh, do, you give, do, you give, do you give in to aggressive <laughs> male overtures? <laughs> uh, uh, only if I really, really like him. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Cinematronics, uh, spelt with an X. And uh, you can find you can find this podcast on my website uh, at cinematronics.co.uk. Um, and you, we've got a Facebook page, haven't we? Where you can find like, a post. <laughs> yeah, from, from a top secret account. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, just, unlike you guys, I don't have one personal, one private, and blah, blah, blah. But yes, you can find us on Twitter at expected to talk at facebook.com slash expected to talk. You can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher. And email us, expect us to talk at gmail.com. Please drop us an email. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any ideas how Chris can get a bigger penis, we're still not getting, we're still not getting much <laughs> feedback on that. You can find me at uh, facebook.com forward slash the pasty kid or at the pasty kid 1976 on Twitter. And do you expect us to talk? We'll return with a view to a kill commentary. <laughs>